Lord, what a beautiful God you are. You know, God, you're not only beautiful in your glory, you were beautiful in your suffering also. And we people can't say that so much. But Lord, we just ask you to be with us this morning and uh, just speak to us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, we're in Luke. And um, last week we got uh, through the scripture where Jesus entered into the temple, cast the money changers and all of those folks out. A little bit of a of a reminder is the uh, temple courtyard, <clears throat> which was basically the Gentile courtyard. It's 35 acres big. 35 acres. And within that, of course, is the temple itself and the court for women, the court for men, the court for the priests, <clears throat> and some, some surrounding things. It's where the Sanhedrin met. And they had 70 people, I believe, and that's where, that's where big government was. Not that we can understand that in the United States, but that's where, that's where big government was. Whatever happened there filtered down through all of the other areas. And um, <clears throat> so Jesus cast all those people out of there, of course. And then we read a few things about uh, what, what happened after that. And I'm not going to repeat those so much as I'm just going to read the Scripture from last week, and then we're going to get into what we're talking about this week. Luke, uh, by the way, all the Scriptures are on your Scripture sheet in order as, as much as they could be. Uh, if, you see, if you hear me reading one that's not there, then it's referenced also, uh, Luke 19.41 says this, But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. And before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Luke 19.45 says this, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his every word. And we discussed last week there were two groups of people that responded to his teaching. One group was those who received the message, Matthew twenty-one fourteen, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Luke nineteen forty-eight. For all the people were hanging on his words. Matthew twenty-one fifteen, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. And finally, Mark eleven eighteen, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And we discussed last week that it's always the self-confessed bent nails of society that will be drawn to Jesus. Money is an obstacle to faith. Power is an obstacle to faith faith, and authority is an obstacle to faith. The second group, of course, were those who rejected the message. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And in Matthew 21, 15, and the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and were indignant 
And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, these, these were the, the children who were saying, Hosanna, he, he said to them, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Mark, 19, Mark 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why did that frighten them? We're going to get into that this morning. And it says in Luke 19, <clears throat> Luke, Mark eleven nineteen, And when evening came, they, meaning Jesus and the apostles, went out of the city. <clears throat> they were going back to Bethany. Beginning for our lesson this morning, the first thing we recognize is that Jesus continued to teach in the temple. Mark eleven nineteen tells us that Jesus and his apostles went out of the city. However, between Mark eleven eighteen and Mark eleven nineteen, we read the following account beginning in John. And this is where your scripture sheet picks up. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These were converted Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. In verse 23, it says this, And Jesus answered them, now meaning he was answering the whole crowd. He wasn't just answering Andrew and Philip. We'll see that in verse 34. He answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Jesus is obviously speaking of his impending suffering and death. He is making an agricultural comparison because everyone understood agriculture back then. He's saying basically this. If I buy a valuable seed, and let's say that seed cost me my whole bank account, and what I do is I put that in a jar so I can always have it, nothing comes from that seed, which is what the seed was meant to do all along. But if you plant that seed, that seed dies, but out of that, as we know, comes an entire crop for us to harvest. So he's talking about his suffering and his death, and he's saying, if I do not die, this gospel will. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and that means whoever loves their life on earth This is what the Bible says. We are all going to die. Now, even if Jesus comes back before we die physically, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no eternal life. You will live forever, but it will not be in the presence of God. So he says, look, everything dies is going to produce fruit. 
And then he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Let me say that another way. If you say that you love me, you will obey me. So he's making this comparison to the seeds. Now, we have been observing what happened when Jesus was in human form and teaching and performing miracles. At the very least, he was met with skepticism and resentment. And at the very most, people were confused and frustrated. It was always Christ's plan, and we can say it was always his destiny to suffer and die, which would then produce within the apostles what was needed to be able to risk their lives to do the same. Because until Christ was no longer present, the urgency of sharing the gospel was lost on the apostles. Can you apply that at all to your life today? As long as someone else is carrying the gospel... You do not feel it is upon your shoulders to do so, right? As a church, sometimes church is, a, is an enemy. I don't mean that in a spiritual sense. But it's an obstacle. Church can be an obstacle with us. As long as we can get together and fellowship and encourage one another and invite a few people here and there just to come to church. I'm not sharing the gospel with my friends. I want to bring them to church so the pastor can share the gospel with my friends. And by the way, that's not that's okay. But you know, I think until we understand that every word we speak is tallied and will be remembered, we waste a lot of words. Till Christ suffered and died and was received back into heaven, the Holy Spirit could not be sent to indwell the apostles and other believers. So the first thing we remember is Christ's plan was always to fulfill his destiny and go to the cross so that the apostles would be, would be empowered by whom? The Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty five says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Without the Holy Spirit, the apostles would not necessarily have remembered or put point A and point B together. He left that to the Holy Spirit. So let's read carefully what the Holy Spirit brought to us that Jesus could not bring. John 16, 5 says this, By now, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, meaning the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So in verse 9, he, he expands on that. He says, he will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. He will convict the world concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. He will convict the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
The Holy Spirit plays a very important role in our faith. And by the way, it was not that Jesus was insufficient or limited as to being able to bring what the Holy Spirit brought. It is that Jesus restricted himself as the second person of the Godhead to refrain from stepping outside of his ordained role as a son of God. And of course, what he was saying to everyone was spoken in code. There really wasn't anyone there going, ah, now I get it. Now it's all become clear to me. But the disciples would look back upon that and understand his words as we just read in John. So Jesus continues on with this prophecy, John 12, 27 through 29. This is what he's teaching in the court of the Gentiles. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now here's an amazing scripture. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Okay, now think about this. To those who believed, it was the voice of an angel. To those who continued to reject Christ, it was the sound of thunder. Both the angels and thunder, by the way, submit to God's authority. Ezekiel 12.2 says this, Son of man, you will dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel's prophecy was being fulfilled there yet again. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Imagine, every time you speak the gospel to someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you begin to give your testimony, how you are willing, and possibly you already have surrendered everything you have, just for the love of God, just for the love of Jesus Christ, they are thinking that is folly. Where are your investments? How much is your 401k? What have you begun to plan for? You fool. And by the way, all those things are good. But you fool. It cannot save you. And Paul says it this way. The words of the cross are folly to those who are perishing. Those who are destined to be lost forever. These words are folly. But to those who are being saved... We receive and we rejoice in those words. To our world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing more than unwanted noise in an already noisy world. It just adds to the volume created by myths, lies, trite slogans, and heresy. To us, it is the power of God. 
Can I just talk political for a moment? And everybody's... By now, I've given you a few seconds to hear that. And you're going... All I want to say about the politics of today and the culture is I've never heard so many ridiculous things spoken so loudly so many times. Ever. And these are the people who are brilliant. These are the people who have dedicated themselves to running our lives. Does that sound familiar to the Pharisees? Can we draw this comparison? It's just noise. I don't want to see it, don't want to read it. We read in John's narrative that Jesus explained it this way. This is, he's still teaching. He says, this voice has, has come for your sake, not mine. I know my Father. I knew what He was going to say before He said it. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will be the rule. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Remember when he sat on the foal of a donkey looking at Jerusalem and he said, but now for you it is too late. And he says, now is the judgment of the world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? That's that's the right question. Who is the Son of Man? They are asking the right question, and Jesus is giving them not just an answer. He's giving them the answer when he responds. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's talking there about when he will leave And the entire world will be judged. And once he leaves, it's darkness. Why would Jesus not say to them, I am him? Who is this son of God? Are you the son of God? And he gives the parable. Why wouldn't he just say, I am him? I am your Messiah. Well, here's a one-word answer to that question. Timing. It's timing. He must remember, we must remember that Christ is fulfilling prophecy right down to the hour. Why would he say it in a cloaked fashion? Because it is still his way of proclaiming the gospel. He's still proclaiming the gospel, but not in a way that will keep him from fulfilling prophecy right down to the hour. And by the way, the same answer is true when at times the Scriptures say that Jesus hid from the leadership. I remember hearing it taught that, see, even Jesus had fear. No, he didn't. Timing. The reason he hid from the authorities after he preached these kinds of words is it was not yet his time 
to be crucified. It was not out of fear that he hid. It was to delay what they were planning to do until it was God's appointed time for him to fulfill his mission. And in a way, we could say that Christ was manipulating their rage until it peaked at just the right moment so that they would fulfill their destiny. Their destiny was to betray the Son of God and thus fulfill God's plan. And then we read this in Mark eleven nineteen. And when evening came, they, Jesus and the apostles, went out of the city. So we learn this. Jesus continued to teach in the temple. It's very important. We continue to share the gospel, even if we are in the midst of the storm. But our great challenge, folks, is not when we're in the midst of the storm. Our greatest challenge is when we are in the midst of contentment. Second point is Jesus sought fellowship. We do not have an account of what took place that night in Bethany, but we can rightly assume that Jesus drew strength from prayer and his fellowship with the twelve, including Judas. Keep this in mind. The traitor was in his midst and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I want to repeat that. Jesus, the Son of God, drew strength from prayer and his fellowship with the twelve and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He alone knew what was about to take place, and he chose prayer and what? Fellowship. So if Jesus drew strength from fellowship as he prepared for the trials that awaited him, how much more important is it that we do not forsake fellowshipping with one another in the midst of our trials? This is what the flesh screams to us when we're in the midst of trials, sorrow, whatever it may be, financial woes. Just seclude yourself. Isolate yourself. And we have dealt with the importance of community here many times, so I will not belabor the point too much, although I probably will, but I'll try not to. That which every therapist agrees upon is that isolation can be both the cause and effect of depression. And I want to say discouragement. Because there are, there are all kind, there's all kinds of baggage attached to the word depression in our culture. So I don't want anyone to believe I'm being insensitive to that. We also recognize there are physical things going on there sometimes. However, we see here that loneliness goes all the way back to Genesis 2.18. God looked upon Adam and he said what? It is not good that man should be what? Alone. It is not good that man should be alone. And he hadn't sinned yet. Now, this does not apply only to the marriage relationship. This was the beginning of the human race. Adam would never again have to be alone. There were times, I'm sure, when Adam wanted to be alone. Oh, I know. There were times uh, he would never again be alone. There would be children and grandchildren which would sprout into those children having aunts and uncles and cousins which would lead to having neighbors and friends. Everything goes back to Adam, good and bad, right? 
There's a basic need built within us to experience consistent, vibrant community. And by the way, that's hard work. It's hard work. Why? Why? Why is that such? Because you have to bury your own desires sometimes. Matter of fact, you have to bury your own rights. I have the right to do this. Look, it's right here in the Scripture. We can say you have the right, but it doesn't mean you should do it right now. We all have rights. What if we were to declare our rights all at the same time? There's a basic need for us to be in consistent, vibrant community. God certainly understood this need that would affect all people. And yet we see that mere human relationships are not sufficient either. It is only in fellowshipping with God that our loneliness can be satisfied. That's the heart of it. Humanity's loneliness is really a spiritual longing to be reunited with our Creator. And only the complete gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to do this. The complete gospel. As much as I like the Beatles, John was not singing scripture when he said, love, love, love. And all you need is love. We need, we need much more than love. As a, matter of, as a matter of fact, love is a, a fruit of everything else that God talks about. The gospel does this through miraculously transforming a broken and lonely heart into a heart that finds salvation and its fulfillment in Christ. So my question is, do you need this this morning? Is this resonating with your heart this morning? Then receive Jesus now. The Scriptures do not just tell us what we need. They also tell us how to accomplish it. We first read with whom we should fellowship. This is all what Jesus meant when He was speaking in the temple, you guys. This is a commentary on what Jesus was teaching. Who was He teaching it to? He was teaching it to primarily non-believing Jewish people. And He's still trying to tell them, this is what you need. Well, we first read with whom we should fellowship in Deuteronomy 31. It says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner, meaning your neighbors, within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Stay together. Fellowship. Then he tells us what we are to do when we are together. I'm sorry, let me, re- let me, let me paraphrase what I just read for you. Bring into your church. If we, were to, if we were to translate Deuteronomy in modern day English for our church, bring into your church men, women, and little ones, and your neighbors who live within your town, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to teach the entire gospel so that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Do this as long as you live in this world until Christ returns and you enter into heaven. 
Who are we to bring to church? Men, women, little ones, and our neighbors. Why? So they can hear the, the complete gospel. Why? So their, their lives will be transformed. Why? So they will teach their children. And then we're instructed how to fellowship. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Paul tells us how we are to teach these things, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. Okay, so, how do we build one another up? You look good today. I like that dress. Boy, you look sharp. Pastor, I like your tie. I'm, I'm not bragging on it. I'm really not. But, you know... Where do we come in with, brother? Can we get some time? And be able to sit down and say, brother, I love you so much. I, I'm, I'm willing to jeopardize our relationship right now. But I know the sin is in your life. God hates it. And I hate that sin in your life. I love you. But I hate that sin in your life. And the reason I'm coming to you is because I have sin in my life. And we are to encourage one another. I wonder how many leaders in Christendom have had sin in their lives that people knew about and they were never confronted. And then sin destroys them and the church and the family. You did me no favor. I do you no favor. And these are hard words for me because I'm a long way from perfect. But the first question I might ask, how long did you know this? I've known it for five years. And you waited until Satan destroyed me? And now you're telling me you knew it? Too late. Hard to hear, isn't it? He was in the temple teaching back out to Bethany. In the hours leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus continued to do these things. He continued to teach and fellowship, share meals, admonish, encourage, and challenge his disciples. Did Jesus need the fellowship of his friends to complete his journey? No. Jesus has no needs. However, he desired it. Now, can we just think about how big that is? It's beautiful. Not out of his need did he fellowship with his friends, but out of his desire to be with them in difficult times. The same is true for us today. James instructs us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And how do we do this? He tells us, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You cannot draw close to God with rebellion in your heart. You can read about Him, and you may get some reprieve just because of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This is a complete gospel of Jesus Christ. We must live intentionally. We must purpose in our hearts to honor God through obedience to his precepts. Then we read the following in Psalm. Psalm 65, 4 says, How blessed is the one whom you choose, meaning God, and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house and holiness of your temple. That is a beautiful phrase. It almost sounds like something come from one of those 18th or 19th century romance novels. Not that I've read them. But it's poetic, is it not? Listen, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. Are you satisfied with the goodness of his house? Or are you still looking for something more? There's nothing more available to us, you guys. If you know Jesus... That's, that's the best. That's as good as it gets. And if you can't find the goodness in that, then we have to begin to think about what happened in our salvation experience. If God cannot satisfy you, then you will remain unsatisfied in life. Why did God send Jesus to suffer and die upon the cross? Primarily God's glory. But here's a reason he sent him to die on the cross, so that we could be reconciled to God. Now think through that a minute. The one who sinned, the one who was in rebellion, the one who made it necessary for Jesus Christ to suffer and go to the cross, the one who neglects God five days a week perhaps, or three days a week, or whatever that may be, the one who is in rebellion... God says, son, you need to fulfill your mission because I want those people to be reconciled to me. So here is the person who knew no sin, who's going to the cross for those of us who have rejected him. How, how strange is that? He did this so we could be reconciled to him into fellowship with him because he, not because he needs us, but because he desires it. Some used to say the reason he created mankind was he was lonely. Trinity's not lonely. They have each other. And by the way, they're all three perfect. They don't cause any issues at all. It's us. We cause the issues. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is is the heart of what Jesus was trying to say in his final days. Keep teaching. Keep sharing the complete gospel. Up to the time I died, I shared the complete gospel. We see no one responding to it. That is not the point. If you don't teach it, they have no opportunity to respond. I have given you the privilege of giving them the opportunity. And he sought fellowship. And finally, he exercised his authority. And this is where we get back in to what we've been studying for a long time now. And that is what's going to take place in the temple.
We pick up the story in Mark on the following morning as they returned to Jerusalem from Bethany. He went in the first night, 35 acres of sin. He left and went back to Bethany. He comes back the next day and he clears the courtyard and he teaches. And he goes back out to Bethany. So we pick up the story in Mark 11.20. says this, As they passed by in the morning, coming from Bethany back to Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree. Remember the fig tree? Withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And it may seem that there's no new significant information here, but there really is. It says this fig tree withered away to its roots. I was speaking with Roger Miller when we were going through those intense rains in the spring. Of course, they have a lot of fruit trees that they're concerned about. And one time he said, you know, I have some real fears for this one particular tree because I go out in, in, the, uh, in the orchard and I see wherever the roots are, there's just big puddles of water that just continue to seep down into the roots. He says, you know, they can handle frost. They can handle all kinds of things above the ground. But once the roots are dead, they are worthless and they have to be removed to make room for new trees. He's talking about judgment. That's what he's talking about. A tree cannot be brought back to life. The tree is unredeemable. It must be uprooted to make room for a new tree, a tree that has life. This is also true of one who dies without Christ. They're unredeemable. There is no hope or second chance. Today is a day of salvation. You must choose in this life or you will spend your eternity. And if you do not choose Jesus, then by default you have chosen hell. Luke 20 one and two says this, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, back to teaching, this would be the day after he declared, after he had cleared the temple and preached, and he's preaching the gospel. Mark says it this way, Mark eleven twenty seven. And they be, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple and teaching, now this would be consistent with rabbinical tradition, 35 acres, and he brings his 12 apostles with him, and he's already been back, and he, start, and he walks into the courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, and, and he begins to teach, and he just keeps walking. And as he's walking, more people begin to notice that someone is teaching, so they start listening. And as he's walking, the crowd continues to grow. And he's, in, he's interacting with all kinds of people. And he's teaching here. And the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, now let's stop there for a moment. It's been perhaps 24 hours, probably more, since he threw the thieves, the idols, and the animals from the 35-acre temple grounds, and he didn't return. I guess I knew that. But that kind of jumped out at me. They were having none of it. For the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, the temple was clean. Now, why is that important? Because it fulfills a prophecy. God will suddenly come in and begin and retake His temple. 
Jesus came in. He cleared the temple. And they did not come back. This gives us an idea of the authority Jesus displayed. He is no longer the meek and humble king. He is a warrior who has reclaimed his father's house. He is the undisputed victor of the battle that took place the day before. He is in charge. No one is questioning his authority. Except... Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority. Let's look at this picture for a few minutes this morning as we close our time together. There is nothing more offensive to the flesh of man than any authority that rules over us. Our flesh is incredibly resistant to anyone having authority over us. It's part of the sin that entered the garden, that entered all of us. This is a result of the effects of this sin. There's nothing more offensive to the flesh of man than any authority that may rule over us. Now, we all agree, at least those of us who have lived for a few years, that authority is unavoidable. We even agree that it's good. We all have some kind of authority that rules over us. We have authority... We use to rule over others. We first experience this when we're little toddlers in our parents' home or whoever has the privilege of raising us. We have little guys and gals, and we've had little guys and gals in our home, and, and we have another little guy in our home right now, and, and uh, we have authority over him. And it's, it's distasteful to him, not because he's a bad kid. It was distasteful to me. We have this authority. And and then we grow a little older. We go to school. Now we have authority of teachers and administrators and principals. And guess what? If you haven't learned how to do it with the authority in the home, you're going to have a more difficult time dealing with it in school. And then there's football coaches and and band directors. and, And there's even more authority coming in. Some may consider our authority a necessary evil that we must put up with. In other words, the authority over us brings some kind of benefit and therefore we welcome it, perhaps begrudgingly, when it benefits us. Other people's authority are used to meet my personal needs. It keeps the law. But authority can be intoxicating. For those who have it. It can also be addictive. We need only to read some very familiar Old Testament stories to see this. At Rock, our youth group, we are reading through 1 Samuel. The life of King Saul is a testimony to the degree to which a godly appointed king can fall. Read it. In a very short period of time, Saul turns from an unwilling king who is hiding amongst the baggage so they can't find him to coronate him 
to a king that goes to a certain city to build a statue of himself. He quickly morphed from a humble and loyal king to rebellious, degenerate, and hostile ruler who spent the latter years of his life trying to murder his son's best friend and the man God called a man after my own heart. That's how he spent his last days, trying to kill David. Enter Jesus. Jesus was the uninvited authority that had entered into the leadership's lives in this courtyard. Uninvited authority. And was diminishing their status and honor and reputations. He was exercising authority over all kinds of things. Plants, animals, demons, illnesses, turned water into wine. And then he enters the temple during the Passover celebration, which is the time when all the leaderships put on their Sunday best robes and all the medals they accomplished by being really good students someplace and all the stoles, and the hats, and they're strutting through the courtyard, and what they want, they were getting, and that is, oh, there goes so-and-so. You see the size of that phylactery? You know what a phylactery is? It was a box that they hung around their necks and put Scripture in it to remind them of certain things. It started out this big. And now what they do, they, they have this big thing here, and they have, they have tassels on the bottom of their robes, and it's Passover, People only see these, these celebrities once a year. And Jesus walks in and clears the temple. He kicks them out. Well, the reason they hated Jesus was he was usurping their authority. And it was in plain sight and plain view. Jesus taught in the temple. He never stopped teaching. We are to do the same. Jesus sought fellowship. We are to do the same. And finally, Jesus exercised His authority. To those who have not surrendered to Christ, God is the uninvited authority that seeks to intrude into their lives and bring judgment. You want to know why the gospel is not appealing to humanity? It's because God says, I'm in charge. See, if you give the whole gospel... Above and beyond, way above and beyond, love, love, love. It may, may, may way underneath it is this. I am God, you're not. If you can't fathom that, we have nothing more to say. How about us? God's God and we're not. What does that mean? We submit. Unfortunately, many times this is true of believers as well. seems as though we are fine with receiving the whole of Jesus' love and blessings, but we would rather accept the authority of God in small bits and pieces. To receive Christ is to receive the only real authority that loves you more than you love yourself. And with that brings the peace that passes understanding. To receive Christ means that you do indeed benefit from His love and blessings but it also means you accept His complete authority. If you've received a Christ that you have not received His full authority, you are not saved. You are not saved. I invite you to surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ.
I know how it works. Parts of the gospel are extremely difficult for me to take with me every day. Every day. You either receive God and Christ and His authority, or there is no salvation. Lord, we love you. These are difficult things. By the way, it's, it's why the leaders couldn't receive him. They had too much to lose in this world. Lord, first of all, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, may we not take you for granted. Just because you have not laid us low or laid us out doesn't mean you're ignoring our sin. It just means your mercy and grace is prevailing. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord Jesus, if there's someone here that does not know you, may they receive you. They don't have to understand at all. But, Father, they need to receive you. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If anyone would like prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Blessings.